The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. There we go. This is uh, Nicholas Swapshot here. That's Stevie Woomer just helping me out, reminding me of my gender, which is a great relief. Uh, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I hope you haven't got anything to do for the next couple of hours because, my goodness, we've got a good lineup of guests for you. And the first one is uh, one of my great favorites from Newsweek magazine, where I am the opinion editor, so you might think I'm a little biased. But uh, Neil H. Buchanan is an economist and a legal scholar at George Washington University. And, of course, as I've just said, he's a frequent contributor to Newsweek's opinion section. So, Neil, it's very good to have you uh, sort of ear to uh, mouth, as it were, that I can hear you. Uh, Thanks for inviting me back. It's great to be here. It's a great pleasure. We're at a a very strange uh, sort of way station in this election, aren't we? Because we've just had the two conventions, and they're traditionally the places that people set out their goods uh, in the shop window and let everybody see. But my goodness, what a change. One was like a sort of uh, Marx Brothers taking over the Cirque du Soleil with uh, <laughs> Mr. Trump's wife falling off the high wire on yeah. the first day, and, and on it goes. And then it was almost old-fashioned to go back to the Democratic Convention. Here's a well-ordered, well-greased machine which just knows what you've got to do in order to play the game of you know, show business politics. And they had sort of a night of a thousand stars. It was like MGM that they brought one person after the next, which was astonishing. Is yeah, that the I, way that you've I, looked I at it? somewhere that the, uh, 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 some network people were, were wishing that the uh, conventions had run in the other order um, because the, uh, the, you know, the Democrats were essentially doing what what they would always hope to be doing um, but then the republican convention was so unpredictable and had so much uh... comic value to it um, that uh, I, I think it was seth myers who hosts one of the late night comedy shows he was saying you know you you, you want to end with your strongest material um, and the democrats were you know essentially great but boring um, in, 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 the, in the sense that the, the, the way the media laps up Trump, um, you know, he's, he's just, he's, he's never a dull moment. Yeah, you famously called him in a great column that, uh, that we ran. Uh, uh, Trump was a poor little rich kid and the yeah. ultimate entitled brat. So <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people have thought that. And Mrs. Clinton was pointing it out yesterday, too. You know, a number of people have pointed out that if you've achieved anything, it wasn't necessarily because your father gave you a, a, a million dollars in a check on your, whatever, 21st birthday. Right, and the thing is, that it, that, that's the least of it, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, oh, gee, I got a small loan from my dad and it was a million dollars. You know, I mean, this is in the 70s, back when a million dollars meant something. Um, but uh, um, it's way more than that. He, he received uh, 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 his share of a multi-hundred million dollar inheritance. Um, and so what I was writing about in that column um, that, you, that you referred to a couple of months ago was the fact that he could have taken the, uh, the, the, the tens of millions of dollars that he received from his father back then and done nothing other than just park it in the most conservative uh, uh, investment funds available 
and have more money than he has today. But even that, that he claims to have today, of course, we don't know how much money he has. He, he, he's, he's famously said that he changes the valuation on a day-to-day basis on, on, uh, based on how he feels. Um, but even on the, uh, the relatively uh, uh, well-accepted public numbers that, that he has put out, um, simply sitting on his father's inheritance would have done better uh, for him than what he actually did by going out and, and trying to be a businessman. So that his, yeah. his sort of art of the deal kind of mystique um, essentially boils down to, I started with a lot of money, inevitably, therefore, I would have a lot of money. It's just that I did less well than by doing nothing at all. <laughs> How many of us can say that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's fascinating. Now, we ran a piece earlier this week which was talking about uh, uh, how come that Trump rides around in private planes, boasts all the time about how wealthy he is and how glamorous his family are and how he's never made any errors and all the rest of it. And, uh, and yet the people who support him on the whole are amazingly modest people who actually feel that uh, life has dealt with a very bad hand. And yeah. uh, th- th- this author was suggesting that uh, maybe it was because people all want to be Donald Trump. Is that the secret to his success, do you think? I, I think there's something to that, but I, I don't think it's the secret. To, I think the secret is, 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 is uglier than that. But before I get to that, uh, there is certainly a, a part of, uh, long before Trump came along, one of the things that, that, that that policy analysts have been wondering about in the United States is why the Republicans were able to get so much mileage out of attacking the estate tax. Uh, even when they started the attack, it was um, hitting less than 2% of all uh, estates. Now it's down to something like 0.18%, and yet the Republicans are still going after it. Trump has said that he would repeal it. Um, and it, it was sort of the same the same issue that you raised, which is, well, people who never, ever are going to have to pay an estate tax uh, or, or, or uh, receive money from uh, a relative, um, you know, who, who, who would never have to pay an estate tax, why are those people uh, uh, lining up against it? And as you, you suggest, there is some sense of, well, it could be me, right? The, 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 same, the same logic that has people buying lottery tickets boils down to, well, if, if somehow I come up with the next Pokemon Go and that makes me the, the next multi-multi-multi-millionaire, uh, 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 I don't want my money taken away when I die. Um, I, I, I think there, is, there obviously is something to that, um, and, and so I think some Trump supporters have this uh, that logic more broadly applied, right? So, so that it essentially boils down to, well, he's just a rich guy, and he says things that sound kind of unvarnished, and so I don't care that he uh, that he might have made money off of ripping off people like me. Um, I, I I still don't follow the logic, but 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 I understand that that seems to be floating around there. But I, and I have written this in, in pieces that, that, that you've run on, on Newsweek, um, um, uh, but I think it bears repeating. Um, to me, it's not uh, that these you know, people of very modest means who are supporting Trump um, think they're going to be rich someday um, or you know, even admire somebody who's rich, because these people didn't exactly admire Mitt Romney, even though he's 
you know, worth at least a quarter of a million dollars, a quarter of a billion dollars, if not more. Um, but the, uh, uh, to me, and I, I, I wish it weren't true, but I really think that the, the, the common theme here is, uh, is more of a racial white supremacist kind of uh, backdrop that, um, uh, that, that, that the people who like Trump, I mean, the, the ones who really like Trump, um, are looking at it from the standpoint of he, he speaks to their grievances, and their grievances, although in many ways economically based, are aimed at the wrong people, right? So that it essentially boils down to, you know, why why does Trump have so much success with with saying, keep the Muslims out, um, you know, build a wall, uh, um, you know, all of the things that that sort of add up to uh, to the grievance of the uh, um, uh, of, of of the the sort of less than college educated white voters, which seems to be the big demographic that that has been identified. And the, um, uh, to tie it into the, the global phenomenon that I think you and I talked about last time with Brexit, um, uh, that became a big deal because the, basically the, the English and Welsh, um, people who have the same list of grievances, um, voted against their own interest and against the, the you know the interests of, of of the world ultimately, um, and Trump cheered them on, right? And the, you know, to me, yeah. the, the 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 thing that was interesting about that was that he really shouldn't have had an opinion on that at all. I mean, if, if he were really an America First guy, it just shouldn't have mattered. He he wouldn't have weighed in. He would have just said, hey, I'm America first. What do I care about what goes on in, in, in Wales, right? Um, but yeah. instead, you know, he's saying, oh, you know, people are taking their country back, right? And, you know, and then you start to look at it and say, who, who are the people, you know, what, who, who are they taking it back from? And it just lines up with, with, with race, race and religion. Fascinating stuff. Now, we have to take a break, and after that, we'll be talking to Neil Buchanan again. Uh, he is... Uh, economist and uh, legal scholar at George Washington University and uh, somebody contributes to Newsweek regularly. Uh, so we'll be back after this short break. You're listening to Leslie Marshall Show. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Okay, welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm standing in for the rest of the afternoon. My name's Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek magazine, and I'm uh, having a good talk with Neil Buchanan, who's an economist and legal scholar at George Washington University and also a regular contributor uh, to Newsweek. If you like what he's uh, saying, go and look out on the Newsweek uh, at newsweek.com, and you'll find some fascinating stuff there. Uh, but before we get to Neil, I want to talk to uh, someone on the line 
And it's Michael in the Bronx. And you've been watching, Michael, as far as I understand, sort of two weeks back-to-back of the soap opera that, or what a reality show that the American election has become. Well, hello, gentlemen. I find that the DNC was far more inspirational, more informative, more um, trustworthy than the RNC. And there was a lot of civility and love in the DNC and a lot more hatred, despicable hatred, and racism in the RNC. Now, I don't know if yesterday, if there were any home runs or grand slams in any of the major league baseball teams, but I can assure you that a grand slam was hit in the DNC and was hit by our uh, presidential nominee, Hillary Clinton. I mean, she hit it way the heck out of the arena throughout the um, East Coast. I mean, I'm just being, you know, very um, you know, descriptive right here. But the thing is that what I love is hearing from those that have been hurt by Trump in so many ways. Um, I had a Muslim American who was hurt by um, Trump's um, ban against Muslims and the constant hate and fear-mongering against Muslims. We heard from the mothers that have been affected by gun violence police violence, and pretty much violence in general because Trump is a, is a violent monger. You know, I never heard of anybody that says he wants to beat the crap out of his um, critics, his, his, um, anybody that questions him or anything like that. I mean, I don't think Trump really knows what it means to be president. It sounds like he wants to be more of an emperor, a dictator, and he's very, very dangerous. Very good points, Michael. That's very well said. I think that's the traditional democratic view. Now, uh, Neil, you came around rather slowly to Hillary. How do you think she did last night? First of all, explain why you were rather reluctant to get to support her in the first place. But yeah, then, well, how do you think so she pulled it off? Just to agree with, with, with the, uh, uh, the caller, Michael. let me just add that, that to me, the entirety of, of, of the Trump campaign was crystallized in his statement, I alone can fix it. To me, like that, that's all you need to know about his mindset. Um, but I, I, I don't want to ignore your, your question, Nicholas. Um, so I was um, slow to come around on Hillary because um, basically, to me, there are two camps in the Democratic Party and have been long before this election. Basically, there are people like me who believe that the New Deal and the Great Society and, and basically an, uh, an active government trying to uh, uh, make, make the country work better um, uh, worked to get us out of the Great Depression. It made us a great uh, uh, economic power um, in the uh, post-war era. Um, and then uh, there's the second group that responded to the Reagan revolution by essentially, uh, um, uh, and, and, and interestingly, Bill Clinton is, is sort of the, 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 the one person you can, you can point to as being an example of this, of the, the, what, what we call the neoliberal approach, um, which essentially boils down to saying the era of big government is over and welfare as we know it. And so Hillary Clinton was part of that um, group. She, uh, it wasn't just that she was married to the person um, who, who embodied it, but she herself 
uh, had really taken a lot of, of um, uh, positions that I disagreed with in terms of, you know, uh, uh, being um, uh, uh, too cautious in terms of health care reform, things like that. Um, and so how did you so, come around to her, Neil? I'm sorry? How did you come around to her? So, so the, the, the reason I came around was, was that, um, uh, first of all, um, I think that, and, and this, this was crystallized last night, but, but, but I, it, I was feeling it long before this, um, she, uh, I never doubted her intelligence or her uh, good faith. Um, I knew that she wanted to make the world a better place. Uh, I disagreed with her on, on, on the best way to do it. I think that she came around. I, I, I think that time passed. She studied the evidence. She looked at what was happening uh, you know, on the crime bill that became a big deal early in the primaries. She looked at it and she said, yeah, I supported it back then. Turns out it was a bad idea. I was wrong. Let, let's uh, take a new approach. Um, and so I think that uh, the way I came around on her was in part because I think that she's smart enough and she is well-meaning. Uh, not just smart enough. I mean, she's very smart and she's well-meaning and she uh, wants to uh, um, figure out what works. And I think she found out that um, the neoliberal approach uh, just wasn't um, the, the right response to, to the uh, Republicans. Uh, the other reason I came around is, is, is uh, there, there, sometimes there are sort of moments, um, and the moment for me was watching um, coverage back in, I think I, it was October, of the Benghazi hearings. And, I, and I, 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 I just thought to myself, that's who I want representing me always. Um, I've never seen anybody so cool under pressure, um, because it wasn't just that she had um, uh, uh, answers to every question what she did, but the way she handled it was she knew that she was in a crucible where all she, if she lost her cool for three seconds, right, just one bad facial expression, one outburst of, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me, anything like that, and that would be on the loop on Fox News for the rest of her life. Right. Absolutely. She managed Absolutely. To, to, to be there for 11 hours and never let that happen. Well, Neil, it's been a great pleasure, as always, to talk to you. Thank you so much for this. Don't go away, listeners. Uh, we have Sidney Blumenthal on the other side of the break, who's about as close as you can get to the Clintons. And he'll be uh, answering my questions. And if you call in, he'll be answering yours, too. Uh, so... Look for you the other side of the break. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm Nicholas Wapshop, the opinion editor of Newsweek. So, welcome back to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm sorry to disappoint you because I'm not Leslie Marshall. I'm Nicholas Wapshot, the opinion editor of Newsweek, standing in for Leslie, who's uh, taking an early Friday break, I think. Uh, maybe she's heading for the beach. Anyway, now a great pleasure uh, because I have a great friend of mine uh, to talk to us today. Uh, he is Sidney Blumenthal, and I must say, a former President, uh, President Clinton's personal assistant, great friend of the Clintons, and a stunning author, by the way. If you've never read any of Sidney's books, you should uh, well go to any bookshop and get them. But right now, the one you should be thinking about is The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln. The first volume, A Self-Made Man, which goes between 1809 and 1849, has just been published, and it's a total revelation about 
uh, Abraham Lincoln. I think that even people, as we know, even the Lincoln scholars have, uh, have looked very carefully at this book and learned a lot. So, Sydney, many congratulations on the book for a start. Now, we want to talk about uh, some Republican politics while we have Lincoln in mind. The president was talking last night. He mentioned two presidents in his speech, uh, both of them Republicans, and he also reminded people that his grandparents were Republicans. And then he put in parentheses, as if to explain everything, the party of Lincoln. So what's happened to the party of Lincoln today, Sydney? Well, I've just returned from Philadelphia from the Democratic Convention um, back in Washington. I hope I have a little time to reflect on it. Uh, it's, uh, the part, this is, the Republican Party is the party of Trump now. It's not even the party of, um, of the Bushes. It's not the party of Ronald Reagan. And it's certainly not the party of uh, Abraham Lincoln. Um, it's rejected uh, virtually all of uh, Lincoln's views, both of the kinds of uh, uh, policies that he embraced from the beginning of his uh, career as a Whig and later as a Republican, belief in uh, uh, government role, a uh, positive role in uh, creating... Uh, jobs, and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he was certainly uh, not uh, engaged in uh, racist or anti-immigrant policies. He was deeply uh, op opposed to uh, the use of race in uh, politics, uh, fought it his whole life, uh, and fought nativism, um, the anti-immigrant wave uh, that uh, coalesced in the Know Nothing Party. Uh, third-party movement that very much um, is a prefiguration of uh, parts of uh, Trump's appeal, uh, uh, defining uh, immigrants as uh, invaders and the enemy of, uh, of uh, true Americans. The Make America Great Party really existed in the eight, uh, 1850s uh, when its platform was that only native-born Protestants should hold uh, public office. Uh, it was called the American Party. Lincoln despised uh, this party. Um, so I have uh, the, the evocations of Lincoln are uh, uh, bizarre. Um, just in the last 24 hours, Mike Pence, the governor of Indiana and Trump's running mate, has uh, uh, has mentioned Lincoln, uh, uh, saying that. Um, uh, uh, Lincoln said, give them the facts and then let the people decide in a defense of Trump who has nothing but contempt for uh, facts and uh, whose rhetoric is an endless string of falsehoods, distortions, and uh, uh, invective. So but this uh, has the been, Lincolnian tradition um, is, um, is moribund in the... Uh, and what was once the party of, of Lincoln, and I must say, so is the tradition of Reagan, even, in the Republican Party. Yeah, I think that it's taken the Reaganites and the neocons and so on quite a, a time to work out that whilst they were egging on Trump in the last 18 months or so, that actually what it meant was the end of their hegemony. It was the end of their uh, ability to rule the roost. So t t tell me what, because uh, Trump is really just the cherry on the cake, moderate republicanism, if that's what we mean by today, by being the party of Lincoln, that has been gradually disappearing in the last few decades, hasn't it? And what's been the 
why is that? Why, why is there no such thing as the GOP establishment anymore? The Republican establishment, such as it is, was repudiated in the Republican primaries. The beneficiary was Donald Trump. The reason that Republicans are um, uh, angry at their establishment and have nominated Donald Trump is that that establishment um, participated, particularly the congressional leadership and the congressional campaign committees, in constantly stirring up the Republican base with um, right-wing uh, virulent appeals uh, uh, and what are called dog whistles, uh, you know, code words um, uh, involving a race, uh, ethnicity, uh, class, um, uh, anti-government, um, uh, contempt, um, uh, insults, uh, uh, in order to um, uh, gain re-election and election in campaigns. But the problem is this. The problem is what's happened um, in the Obama era. Of course, it goes back before then. But uh, let's just take it from uh, 2008 with the election of Obama. Uh, they saw George W. Bush, a Republican president, uh, who was uh, in office for two terms, uh, betray what they believed uh, were Republican principles in bailing out the big banks during the financial crisis. Uh, they saw that as a big government. Of course, if Bush had not done that, the entire economy would have crashed and we would have entered a deep depression from which we might never have recovered. Um, but they despised that, and they believed that that led to the election of Obama, whom they hated, and Trump was a pioneer in, and gained his political credibility by claiming that Obama was not really an American, that he, that he wasn't born in the United States, and challenged the idea that he was hiding his foreign birth by hiding his birth certificate. Trump was really birther number one, which, of course, is racism. So the origin of Trump is in racism. Um, and... Uh, in the meantime, the Republicans then gained control of the House of Representatives, saying that they would overturn all of the works of President Obama. They gained control, and while they paralyzed a lot, they didn't roll things back because they lacked the power to do so. Then Obama won re-election. Romney was the uh, nominee who the right wing considered to be a hopeless moderate, even though he right wing. Um, he was, from their point of view, a Republican in name only, a rhino. Uh, so Obama again um, uh, confounded them. What happened next? The Republicans won the Senate in 2014. They now had both houses of the Congress. They had a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And yet they could not roll back the works of Barack Obama. Uh, and um, the Republican base became infuriated at the Republican leadership, and they wanted to overthrow it. Um, enter Donald Trump. And all the events of the last uh, year have only intensified this feeling of um, betrayal and resentment, fueling the Trump uh, movement. Uh, uh, Time and again, the Republican establishment has made promises to the base 
of political victories to come that have not happened. Uh, Hillary Clinton was going to be taken out by the Benghazi Committee. And then Antonin Scalia died, and the entire fate of the Supreme Court was thrown into question. The conservative uh, majority had, was now suspended until the outcome of this election. So um, Trump um, really rides a crest of um, deep uh, antagonisms that have been stirred up by the Republican leadership, accompanied by conservative media, including Fox News, and the now disgraced president of Fox News, Roger Ailes, who is a master of uh, this sort of politics that has now reached its culmination in Donald J. Trump. I think that's a a brilliant upsum of exactly where we've reached. Uh, You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. I'm not Leslie Marshall. I'm Nicholas Wapshot, who's the opinion editor of Newsweek. And you've been listening to and will continue to listen to, because you'll be be back after the break, Sidney Blumenthal, uh, author of a brilliant book about Lincoln, A Self-Made Man, first of three volumes. Go out and buy it now. And, uh, of course, he was the... uh, special assistant to President Bill Clinton, and we'll be talking to Sydney after this break. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show, truth for all sides of the spectrum, 888-6-LESLIE. So welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Nicholas Wapshot standing in for Leslie for the rest of the afternoon. And uh, I'm talking to Sidney Blumenthal, uh, the editor of Self-Made Man, which is The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, a fine book if you're at all interested in British, uh, sorry, American political history. Uh, please go and read it. Uh, and we're talking, of course, because we're in the middle of convention season, about the two conventions just passed. Uh, it strikes me that, uh, Sidney, Maybe you disagree, but the whatever Trump was up to last week, what the Democrats were left with today was to try to do two things. One was to woo over uh, the sort of moderate Republicans that we were talking about, people who just can't bear Trump any more than you and I can. Uh, and then there were also the people, and you've also been talking about them, which are the blue-collar, uh, disenchanted uh, some Democrats, a lot of Republican voters uh, in the Rust Belt states. So... Do you think that the Democrats managed to achieve that this last week, Sydney? Well, we're going to find out uh, what happens with the polls in about a week. I would uh, be patient with the polls because it takes some time for the public to absorb all these events that have occurred over the last couple of weeks of both conventions and to process them. And I wouldn't jump on instant polls or immediate polls or tracking polls. Give it a little time and and then we'll see the shape of the race, um, which will settle in in uh, the doldrums of August, uh, leading into uh, the debates at uh, the end of uh, September. But the conventions were incredibly uh, interesting events. Um, the, uh, the Trump event, um, a, a comedy of errors, um, presentation of um, fourth-rate, uh, would-be celebrities uh, and uh, his members of his immediate family, uh, an extraordinary paucity of um, prominent Republicans 
uh, speaking from the platform. And then finally, uh, Trump's 70-minute um, oration, um, uh, what Hillary Clinton calls his uh, <laughs> Midnight in America speech, um, <laughs> a, a compendium of um, fears and smears, uh, which um, uh, got him in many polls a slight lead, but then we'll see. But interestingly, uh, what he did was to uh, relinquish whole parts of the American political tradition to the Democrats who seized them, not only in Hillary's speech, but in the presentation of the spectrum of speakers from uh, General Allen, the, uh, the former commandant of the Marines, uh, to the father of the uh, soldier, uh, the Muslim soldier who had saved his unit uh, in combat. Uh, very dramatic scene. And many, many others. And so what the Republicans seeded was, um, was, was the whole um, theme of American patriotism to the Democrats who, who waved the flag, chanted USA, um, had military figures up there, but also uh, people representing diversity um, uh, and a very different uh, kind of America than uh, Trump's America. Uh, and if any uh, convention could be said to, in thematic terms, not in terms of um, actual policies, uh, although in some there is a continuity, uh, to represent the tradition of not only the uh, tr uh, the Democrats going back to uh, the uh, Kennedy years and the Roosevelt years, but also the Republican Party of Ronald Reagan. Trump has given that all up. He's given up mourning in America. Uh, it's all darkness. Uh, there's uh, He has... Uh, attacked the Western Alliance. He's attacked the idea of the United States and its international responsibilities and presence. Uh, and, ex and extraordinarily, he's embraced um, the, the authoritarian uh, and expanse, expansionist leader of Russia, the former KGB agent, Vladimir Putin. Um, that's his closest <laughs> tentative ally. Um, so uh, this isn't, and and he called for this adversary, foreign power, to intervene in it in an American election through criminal means, through espionage. <laughs> Extraordinary. It is beyond belief. It's beyond belief, isn't it? I mean, if you gave him a playbook of, if it, it was a dirty tricks business, and you gave him a playbook which said, "Here are forty things you should do," knowing that they would all go wrong, he's done them all. But actually, he still seems to, you know, he's still. Closer in the in the polls than we might guess, though, as you say, uh, we yeah. went through two conventions well, and um, that'll go. What's interesting is that um, there's a base of voters who are so um, uh, angry, frustrated, and um, that they want to blow everything up, and they don't want to hear uh, any uh, factual argument. They don't want to be presented with any evidence. Uh, uh, against Trump, they simply, they are, so the attacks on Trump as representing risk 
for this particular base of Trump may not uh, have any resonance because this group wants risk. They want Trump to be volatile. Um, you know, um, when he's mean, they may want someone who's mean-spirited. Um, they may think that's what's necessary to shake it up. And they may believe his um, um, ludicrous, absurd um, promises. Uh, not overlooking, of course, the facts of his own business record. They think he's a successful businessman who has yeah, made which... people rich. Uh, they don't understand that the, <laughs> um, the man who, who offers himself as a protector is actually the predator. He's actually the person who's preyed on them, who's created um, this kind of economy that they're revolting against. So you have that. Yeah. Then you've got still a residual Republican partisanship of people willing to support Trump as uh, the nominee, uh, while many other Republicans are filled with, um, and I've talked to any number of them, uh, with complete dismay and uh, a feeling that... Um, uh, they of doubt of whether they will ever recover um, their party uh, uh, post-Trump and whether yeah. he is okay, completely now, remaking their party. We've got a little time to talk about, because for last night was a very important night, not only for Hillary Clinton, but for people like you, Sydney, people who have been in the trenches for... Uh, the Clintons for many decades now. So it must be a very, very, you must be on some sort of high last night, or maybe you'd anticipated, like the market, you'd anticipated the good news. But how do you think she, she had a tough act to follow? She, uh, after Michelle Obama's brilliant speech, Obama's brilliant speech, Bill Clinton's brilliant, brilliant speech, how do you think she pulled it off? I think she did very well and um, hit all of her marks. Um, it, it was a speech that required her to pass a certain political bar. And there were, and that bar included uh, many measures that she had to hit, uh, of groups that she had to appeal to in certain ways in order to unify the party, appeal outward uh, to uh, those uh, voters who are frustrated by the economy and by questions of economic inequality. She had to appeal to the diversity of the election. She had to uh, describe uh, and analyze her opponent, Donald Trump, who's uh, a unique uh, opponent, unlike any other Republican who's run. And she had to define American patriotism for this particular period. And she also had to define her relationship to two presidents, one, her husband, and two, the sitting president, the Democratic uh, incumbent, Barack Obama, under whom she, she served as Secretary of State. Well, that's quite a lot to do. And she passed all yeah. those bars. So it was a very successful speech capping what was a very successful convention that could have gone wrong and could have been disrupted um, by the okay. left, but instead ended with uh, Bernie Sanders embracing her, Elizabeth Warren, and Sydney, all the thank, thank you. Enough, enough. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. 
of for and by you the people That's the uh, Spencer Davis group uh, reminding me that I'm a man, which I'm very grateful, because it's true, I'm not Leslie Marshall. Who could be Leslie Marshall? Uh, but I am standing in for Leslie this afternoon. Uh, we've got another hour to go. We've got two great guests, and we've also got some callers, uh, someone we should have squeezed in earlier, because Vic from Ithaca, not easy to say, uh, by the way, if you're a broadcaster, Vic from Ithaca is on the line right now. So, Vic, what did you have on your mind? How are you, sir? I appreciate you having me on as well. Um, an interesting conversation, gosh, I'd love to have all afternoon to debate with you folks. But um, calling in reference to a gentleman that was on quite a bit earlier, I apologize. I think his name's Brian, but I'm not sure. Um, Neil Buchanan. To, yeah. Thank you, Mr. Buchanan. Okay, I think listening to him and Mr. Blumenthal, interesting to hear uh, points from my side that I, I believe are, are actually they're spot on. Uh, <clears throat> but I took a little issue with, with something Mr. Buchanan said earlier, and I would think folks would want to perhaps think this through. Uh, I'm a registered independent, have been for 49 years, or not 49 years, but I'm 49 years old, of course. Um, two different degrees from college. I just feel compelled to give you a, uh, a resume here. You know, a couple of bachelor's degrees was in the military <laughs> for six years. Keep it short, I would, Vic. <laughs> would not say everyone's racist on the Trump campaign. I think that's really missing the mark. I think that, uh, you know, many of us are very, very, I mean, that's an insult. It, it, you know, to think that, that, that the entire folks that may support him. And I, I wasn't one, and I'm still not one, that's in love with the fact that he ended up being the nomination, you know, the nominee. Um, however, I think there are some other, you know, factors involved that are of the utmost importance to us in why many folks are perhaps falling in line to, to support him. Um, so that, that was, you know, to water it down, you know, just to boil it down, that was essentially the comment I was hoping to discuss with Mr. Buchanan. But, you know, the, the short end of it would be I, I wouldn't make the mistake to think it's, you know, strictly folks that are that are racist. I'm not, not at all. I think that's that's pretty extreme. To, I'm not saying there aren't racists yeah. on both sides of the, you know, the aisle. I'm just simply saying that for a lot of folks that may be falling in line to support him, there are other very important uh, factors on the line for us. Um, you know, what we feel traditional, uh, constitutional, Supreme Court, uh, you know, the, the lack, in my humble opinion, of the current uh, administration to really reach out and try to make some things happen bipartisan as, a, as opposed to simply lecturing us why their way was the right way. There, there's a lot of that, anger involved in that. Yeah, absolutely, Vic. You're making very good points. Of course, we do tend to generalize, don't we, when we make political arguments. Uh, and while the Trump campaign certainly is... Uh, lent upon racial hatred uh, and made dog whistle remarks. It doesn't mean that everybody who even now going to vote Trump is uh, going to be a racist person. Anyway, uh, it's good to talk to you, Vic. When I, now my next guest is Joe Connison, who's a really old friend. And, and uh, he's a journalist, he's a political commentator, and he's also written a book, amazingly timely this, about the, the end... Well, the, the, the final act, maybe, of uh, Bill Clinton. Though, of course, if he becomes the first husband, I guess, Joe, you're going to have to write another book will be the final, final act. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll beg off that duty for right now. It took eight years to write the, the, this book, Nick, and 
It will come out in September. It's called Man of the World, and it's about his post-presidency. Um, but it is timely because the, as you know, uh, the Clinton Foundation and uh, some of his activities since he left the White House have been controversial, although they've only become controversial when somebody is running for public office uh, or uh, a candidate for president, specifically his wife. Uh, in between times, nobody seems to t make any objections to the Clinton Foundation or the Clinton Global Initiative. The Republicans are all happy to come there and, you know, uh, get up on the podium and talk about how great he is. But when his wife starts to run for office, they all suddenly decide it's all it's terrible and uh, suspect and needs to be investigated and uh, probably is is not what it appears to be. So it's and I examine all of that in the book and and much more. And uh, t tell me, I mean, we're talking about a, a large post-presidency presidency. presidency. A large number of years. Now, we know what yes, Jimmy Carter's been doing. He's twice been, as long as yeah. he was president, almost. At, yeah, and because he, he was so young when he became president, he was so young when he became the ex-president. Obama's going to do the same thing. Uh, what does he actually do with his time? I know the Clinton Foundation is, fills him up, and he's worked, worked in Haiti well, and so on. you know, I mean, Nick, he, he's, he has made a lot of money giving speeches uh, around the world. Mm. So he mm. has done quite a bit of that. Uh, uh, in the book, I talk about what, his schedule uh, entails a great deal of foreign travel, uh, a great deal of domestic travel, and a significant amount of time running the foundation, which is now a, a multi-million dollar, you know, annual uh, operation with uh, many, many employees and volunteers. So uh, he has he has a plan, and he's written several books since he, he left office. Uh, Including his memoir, for which he got the largest advance in history, uh, and uh, at least two other books, uh, significant books. So, uh, yeah. Giving, which was a book about charity and, and how people should try to uh, behave as citizens uh, and give something back, and uh, Back to Work, which was uh, his book about the financial crisis and what we needed to do to get out of it. Uh, now, I don't want to jump the gun, and I certainly don't want to sort of tempt fate here, but well, they, if they, everything they goes according to... Amazon now, anybody who's listening, and I, I, I hardly uh, sorry, yeah. them to do so, but... Uh. Absolutely. What I was going to say was I don't want to tempt fate. The, what sort of first husband is Bill Clinton going to be, do you think? I mean, he's playing a very I, active you, guy and hugely so, politically powerful. Yeah, if you, if you listen to his... Um, speech at the committee. You know, I went down to Philadelphia on Tuesday night uh, to hear his speech, and I thought it was very clear that what he is has set out to do in that speech, at least, was to uh, acknowledge the reversal of gender roles. So he gave the speech that, uh, you know, Ann Romney gave. I mean, he gave a speech about a testimonial to his spouse, which is the normal uh, speech for a spouse to give at a at a nominating convention, uh, not like the speeches that he you know very uh, effective speeches that he gave in the past for John Kerry uh, uh, and for Barack Obama twice, including the last one in 2012, which lots of people think helped him to win re-election. Um, but I think he'll do what he's asked to do, you know, this which is what he did in both of her presidential campaigns uh, so far, and, and in this one. Uh, he will take on uh, 
roles that she asked him to take, and I think they could be diverse. If you look at the foundation and the work he's done uh, since he left the White House, it's quite uh, there's quite a range of of things that he's he's occupied himself with. Everything from uh, how we finance and uh, distribute uh, medical care in the underdeveloped world to uh, dealing with uh, the childhood obesity crisis in the United States to uh, all kinds of diplomatic uh, missions that he's undertaken, both known and uh, not known until now that I go into in the book, um, where he was called upon by both the Bush and uh, Obama administrations to deal with uh, problems that they had abroad. So I think, you know, he would be a kind of, you know, in a parliamentary government, minister without portfolio. He would be somebody who she would uh, task to do various things. You can think of what some of them might be now. I mean, she said he would have a role in revitalizing the economy. Seems to me that's a little too broad, and maybe what she might ask him to do is go into the depressed areas of the country and try to figure out how to revitalize those places, which is something he's done in Africa. He has uh, done a lot to raise, although this is not something people write about most of the time. He's done a great deal to raise farmers' incomes in Africa and try to keep them on the land and uh, introduce modern agricultural methods in, in African communities in places like Malawi, which nobody ever pays any attention to. Uh, at the same time, uh, encouraging the farmers there to do things that combat climate change, which means planting millions of trees and finding crops and trees that they can grow that will uh, increase their incomes and providing them health care and schools and all, all of these kind of um, development amenities, really, you could call them. And I think there's yeah. a way yeah. to transfer some of those skills and just his you know, ability to think through these problems uh, to, to the homeland, to, to, the, to the United States. Yeah, it sounds good. So Hillary's going to keep him busy. Uh, and we're going to keep you busy too, uh, Joe, because we're coming back after the break to talk about more about Bill Clinton. But also I want to hear what you thought about uh, Hillary's performance last night. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show, and this is uh, Nicholas Wapshot, and I'm standing in for Leslie this afternoon, and uh, my guest uh, for the next few minutes anyway is Joe Connison, uh, an old friend of mine, uh, a great journalist and editor, and the author of now, the most timely book on earth, Man of the World, The Further Endeavors of Bill Clinton. Uh, you can find it in a bookstore because it has a fantastic grinning picture of Bill Clinton or maybe smirking picture of uh, the, the late veteran uh, Bill Clinton visage. Uh, and he's well, looking you, great. you'll find it in a bookstore on September 13th. You, you can find it on Amazon for now. We're, we're sort of in a pre, pre-interview mode here, pre, pre-publication mode. So <laughs> I'm glad to have got you Only early, Only because Joe. it's you, Nick. <laughs> So. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful. But now, but now tell me, so uh, what did you think? I mean, you went down there. What, would, what did Philadelphia feel like? Uh, you would have thought you know, the, consider- the field down there could not have been more different from 
Cleveland. Uh, uh, saying that as somebody who watched Cleveland on TV, you know, I used to go to both of them every year. And this year, partly because I was a bit exhausted from finishing my book, I, I decided to beg off the conventions and went down to see Clinton kind of at the last minute. But, um, you know, it was, uh, I thought it was a pretty uplifting mood. The only bad day at the Democratic convention, as far as I could see, was Monday when you had the whole uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz imbroglio and uh, the Sanders supporters getting, you know, extremely bent out of shape and making themselves heard by, by you know, the night that uh, that Hillary was nominated and accepted the nomination, I think uh, the mood there was quite um, buoyant. And, uh, you know, the if you looked at, for instance, how, how many people just went to the thing, uh, the arena in Cleveland, according to lots of news reports and, and camera shots that I saw, was like half empty a lot of the time, which is quite bizarre uh, for a convention. I've never seen that before. Uh, in Philadelphia, the place was packed to the rafters and uh, with a very enthusiastic uh, crowd. So, and I just think the tone was quite different as well. I mean, the, the tone of the Democratic convention which had a lot of uh, real celebrities, <laughs> as opposed to you know, <laughs> people like Ted Nugent, uh, yeah. was a positive. You know, it was upbeat. It was more, as somebody said today, Reagan-esque almost. You know, it was, uh, it was uh, a morning in America sort of convention rather than the kind of gloom and doom, you know, angry, uh, uh, you know, uh, America is... is uh, ruined convention of um of the republicans and i should say of the, of the i would say of the putin republicans uh you know because <laughs> the 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 image of america that's now reflected both in that convention and in a lot of what comes out of donald trump's mouth is the same uh, critique of our country that you can hear on russia today and see yeah. coming out of Russian propaganda all the time about uh, what a terrible place America is. That's it's been a theme of Russian propaganda going back to Soviet times. So uh, you know, one isn't. If you start to connect the dots, you aren't necessarily surprised to see any of this stuff uh, or hear it. But I think the Democratic convention was, uh, well, from what I saw, uh, for the brief time that I was down there, seemed uh, like an upbeat, an upbeat event. So. We've got now just a few months left till November. We've gone through the conventions, which are rather like in motor racing, like go through a chicane. And now we're heading for the long back straight, really, all the way to November. Um, I, it's, there's bound to be fireworks, isn't there? I mean, if you have Trump and Hillary, it's going to be a spatting match all the way through, isn't it? Oh, yes. I think it's going to be nasty. I think, uh, you know, first of all, Donald Trump is a personality who's out of control. I mean, he can't, even if he, when he wants to uh, tamp down the nastier side of his personality, he, he just is unable to. He was, today he had uh, tweeted about wanting to beat up Mike Bloomberg, you know, who's a smaller, <laughs> older man, you know, uh, who he, he, can you imagine him picking on the guy? I mean, it's just, you know, he sounds like a high school bully. Uh, so I don't think there's, and, and, you know, you look at the people he surrounded himself with, you know, Paul Manafort, who was a crooked lobbyist who worked for, uh, you know, uh, Ferdinand Marcos and, and other dictators around the world. Roger Stone, who was a notorious dirty trickster for Richard Nixon. I mean, this is a very unsavory group of people. So, 
you know, you see uh, this coming together in a campaign uh, in a Republican Party that's already, uh, you know, a bit on the, on the uh, well, negative side, shall we say. And, you know, uh, you're going to see a lot of nastiness. I, what, what I think they will be surprised by is how tough, you know, Hillary Clinton turns out to be. She will hit back. She's gone through, as you know, Nick, she, and I've written another book about this in the past, she's gone through a lot. And she, she stands up to it, and I think they'll give back. Yep, it's, it's absolutely true. The, uh, so the, the sense is that if between now and November it's going to be an all-out fight, where do, where do you side on the – I mean, sometimes I wake up in the morning and I think, actually, the Dems are going to get a landslide. They could even get the Senate. And other days I think, oh, my God, I think Trump's going to win. And I hover between these two. I'm rather glad about the second one, the being frightened, because that will – if people are like me, it will drive us all off to the polls. Is that the way that you see it? I think nothing can be taken for granted in an election like this, Nick. You know, uh, Trump mm -hmm. surprised everybody, and congratulations to him and his unsavory staff for pulling that <laughs> off. Uh, I don't think the competition on the Republican side was quite as great as anybody uh, seems to have thought going forward. I mean, if the last man standing is Ted Cruz, then you know you weren't up against much of a field. But still, he came through, and, and I'd, I think it would be a terrible mistake to underestimate him. And I do think, as one of the callers said earlier, there's a great deal of anger in the country, not all of it racist, but some of it certainly racist, that uh, I think has been latent for a while, and the, the Republicans have learned how to dog whistle, and nobody can teach them to do that better than Trump, who was the first of the birthers. So, you know, I, I think it, could, it co could go in any of a number of directions. I think the fact that you wake up with different feelings on different days reflects the reality very well. Joe, it has been great to talk to you. We should do this more often, uh, maybe over a beer or a martini. Um, bring me, uh, congratulations on your bring book. Me, bring Let me, me back just when the book comes out. Uh, I, good idea. The, uh, okay. Thanks, Nick. And the book, let, Jim, let me just remind people, Joe, the book's called Man of the World, The Further Endeavors of Bill Clinton, and it looks at President Clinton's life since leaving the White House all up to the present day. Uh, we are coming up to a break now. On the other side, you've got uh, Ira Stoll, probably the smartest conservative that there is in the United States, and I look forward very much asking him about what he thought about the conventions. Good afternoon. If you've just joined us, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Nicholas Wapshot. I'm the opinion editor of Newsweek, standing in for Leslie for the next half hour. Uh, and uh, I'm very glad to be able to introduce you now to uh, one of my favorite guests and one of my uh, favorite conservatives, indeed, Ira Stoll, who was a colleague of mine. We were colleagues of each other on the New York Sun. Very happy days in lower Manhattan, uh, pumping out a rather old school newspaper, which we were all very proud of. And uh, he is now a, a distinguished conservative syndicated columnist. So, Ira, welcome aboard. Good to be here, Nick. 
Yeah, well, what exciting times, hey? Uh, we've just gone through two weeks of the most, uh, you know, switchback uh, muddle on uh, on both sides in a way. I mean, it, the Republicans started off with, you know, one bad thing happening after the other, starting off with, I guess, uh, well, I mean, where, where do you want to start? Mrs. Trump's plagiarism or whatever. And then you get into, even the Democrats, of course, had a lot of throat clearing to do because they had to get Bernie out of their system. Uh, and uh, then, of course, there was the Putin email, or maybe not Putin email, scandal, which saw the end of uh, Debbie uh, Wasserman Schultz. So, uh, what, just looking back on the last two weeks, I mean, it was a different world two weeks ago, maybe. A lot seems to have happened in the last two weeks. How, what do you make of it? Well, I, I mean, my view of this whole election dynamic is, uh, is good for the news business. I'm not quite sure if it's good for the country. Um, <laughs> If you look at the polls compared to two weeks ago, it's been a good two weeks for Donald Trump. Uh, the the polls after the Democratic convention, most of them that we'll see haven't come out. The one or two that is out suggest uh, not a huge bump for, for Hillary. Maybe in Pennsylvania where the, the Democratic convention was, she gained some ground, um, but it's a it's an indication that that this election has been so hard to read. Every for, for 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 pundits and for the press, every time you think Donald Trump has made some sort of disastrous mistake, uh, it either doesn't hurt him in the polls or it actually helps him. Uh, so it's very frustrating as a journalist to try to understand understand this. Um, and we're, I think we'll have to wait and see for the, this next round of post-Democratic convention polls to read where it's going. And uh, we may have to wait for the election in November. Do you think that both we, journalists in general, but also the, uh, the base of Trump's base, just look at him in a different way? Than they, they judge him by a different standard to other politicians. Almost any of the single gaffes, particularly when it includes race or women or disabled people, would have stopped people dead in their tracks. I mean, you remember that guy who mentioned the word macaca, a word that I'd never heard before. But anyway, that was the end of him. Right. So how come he's so Teflon? I mean, you know, the, well, that at least we should try to get to grips with. There's two reasons. It's a good question. But one is that he's managed to turn political correctness into an issue. So he's running against political correctness. And for, for, for a lot of um, Trump voters out there, and, and, and for probably more than will, will, are willing to publicly admit it, the fact that uh, he annoys the coastal elites um, or, or seems uncouth uh, it is not a bug, but a feature. It's it's a virtue, uh, and 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 the fact that um, he drives the liberals on the coast totally crazy, it, it, it becomes a virtue for 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 Donald Trump in the eyes of his supporters, uh, because they view those coastal elites as having failed, and 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 drawn America into the trouble that it's currently in. And, and related to that is this outsider appeal. So Trump is running less as a, as a positive uh, vote for me uh, 
message and more as a uh, throw the bums out. I'm an outsider. I'm not a career politician uh, sort of message. So um, tr- Trump is the the, the candidate. He, he caught his convention described Hillary as the secretary of the status quo. And Trump has managed to be the change candidate in this election. Uh, and, and that works in his favor to the degree that uh, voters agree that the country is headed on the wrong track, which overwhelmingly they do. Well, but you're hardly a liberal elite member, are you? I mean, I guess you're an elite member in the way that you've grown up through your life, but you're hardly a liberal. But you must wince too, mustn't you, when you watch the TV and he says something appalling about, you know, makes fun of a disabled person by waggling his arms around. I mean, doesn't that get you? Well, I mean, to, to me, as a grandson of immigrants, the, the most disturbing thing about Trump is his anti-immigrant, what, what I take as his anti-immigrant uh, message that's, that's fairly central to his campaign. And I guess what I'd say to that is on each one of these things, the anti-immigrant thing, the anti-Muslim thing, um, he's managed to to couch it in a way that makes him uh, seem seem quite more tolerant. I mean, if if you really want to portray Trump as the uh, the kind of racist. Uh, um, uh, hater, uh, you have to look well. The Republican convention, one night the keynote speaker was Dr. Benjamin uh, Carson, uh, and, and also on the stage were a black sheriff from Milwaukee and uh, some other black law enforcement officials. So you had three uh, black speakers. Uh, then, right before Trump came on, was Peter Thiel, uh, a gay Silicon Valley uh, immigrant. Uh, Peter Thiel came, I think, from Romania as a, as a child. Um, and then he was introduced also by his daughter, Ivanka, an Orthodox Jewish woman. So, uh, you know, for, for the Republicans to be portrayed as this uh, insensitive, uh, party of 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 uh, racist haters uh, for 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 them to showcase you know showcase three blacks an Orthodox Jewish woman and a and a gay immigrant <laughs> uh, you know it's almost like they're 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 intentionally trying to disguise their true message which to me is a it's a, almost like a conspiracy <laughs> theory. Uh, conspiracy theory worthy of Trump himself. I'm glad to see that you're now playing the sort of liberal token game by counting the number of ethnic faces in an audience in order to prove a point. <laughs> uh, well, I, yeah, Peter Tia, hey, by the way, you're a grandson of immigrants. I'm an immigrant, so I, you know, I feel it pretty tensely. And so I'm not sure why an immigrant from Romania who's gay would uh, agree with uh, Donald Trump on very much, really. Uh, and I didn't understand it from the speech why he would feel very ha- happy at home in the old Republican Party. But, of course, when you talk about the Republican Party, that's not quite what Trumpism is anymore, is it? I mean, all of those new people have come into the party. 
or, or come in to use its facilities, as it were, and they're not really GOP people. And there is a profound divide, isn't there, between one side and the other? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a coalition of, of uh, the old right, the paleoconservative, uh, isolationist, uh, racist right, if you would, uh, and, and this new kind of Dick Gephardt anti-trade, uh, Bernie Sanders disaffected, uh, no college degree, working class uh, voter, um, who, who Trump is is trill, clearly trying to, uh, to to cater to, um, and and it's, it's the de- the Democrats I think are having a difficult time adjusting to it. I mean, the best they did. And I think it actually was pretty good. Was when they brought out uh, Joe Biden, who's a has some working class credibility, a son of Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, and and brought him out and said, you know, Donald Trump has got nothing to offer you. He's got he's not going to solve your problems. Uh, and so I I thought he was a credible messenger. On the other hand, the Republicans can turn around and say, "Look, Joe Biden was first elected to the to the Senate in 1972, and and he, he's he and his ilk have more or less been in charge down there for more than 40 years at this point. And what have they got us? That's that's well. We'll get back to this. We'll answer that question uh, on the other side of the break. You've been listening to Ira Stoll talking to me, Nicholas Wapshot, and I'm standing in for Leslie Marshall on the Leslie Marshall Show. And I'll see you the other side of the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Eight 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 six Leslie. Marshall Show. We've only got a few minutes left, but we're going to use them very valuably by talking to Ira Stoll, the smartest conservative in America, a syndicated columnist. Now, I always read you, you actually send them to me, but uh, I always read you when I see you in uh, location is in the New York Sun. But uh, you're scattered across the nation from coast to coast, I guess, people reading your pearls of wisdom. Is that right? Yep, uh, I'm in the uh, Las Vegas Review Journal now on on Sundays and and uh, various other places. That's great. Now, what, your most recent column that I read, anyway, um, is very timely because it uh, not quite reprimanded, but it took exception to the fact that Michael Bloomberg who in his day has been a Democrat, an independent and a Republican, of course, uh, appeared at the Democratic Convention and in no uncertain terms uh, pointed out all of the things that what you were calling the coastal elites say about Donald Trump, and he said he was unfit. Now, just run through your arguments about why someone, why should we not trust someone like Bloomberg, a great bipartisan mayor in many respects, and uh, someone who served for three terms, and uh, people who weren't at his, his own party trusted him. Well, Mike Bloomberg is someone who not only uh, Donald Trump voters, but particularly the Bernie Sanders voters, 
uh, are are against. He's he's a he's a Manhattan Wall Street billionaire, and if Hillary is uh, running in part to. Uh, I mean, she spoke about it in her acceptance speech. She said, you know, never again will we allow Wall Street to wreck Main Street. And which, by the way, is quite a simplification and I would say an inaccurate one of what actually happened in the financial crisis. Uh, but but if you're going to buy that, that, that the billionaires are ruining America and that Wall Street wrecked the economy, I mean, why would you have a guy out there uh, in Mike Bloomberg, who makes his money by selling computers to big Wall Street banks. I mean, that's and, and, I think, and his net worth is 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 not just a, a, a Trump-like uh, mere uh, several hundred million or at most one billion. Uh, it, it Mike Bloomberg's worth is is twenty or thirty billion dollars. I, I mean, he yeah, he but this yeah. Mm. But the sort of people that Mike Bloomberg is there to persuade, of course, are the moderate Republicans who uh, are offended by his abusive take on women, on uh, people of certain races, on judges, judges who are Mexican descent, or things, the whole litany of things. Somebody like Mike Bloomberg is a self-evidently decent, good guy, gives a lot of money to charity, a huge amount of public service, and I, I would guess that the Democrats are up to good tricks, which is to try to get someone... Can anybody disagree with Mike Bloomberg, apart from maybe the, the gun-toting people? Uh, that he, I would guess that he was worth a lot of votes last night, or the night before when he spoke. Well, look, no one's a bigger fan of Mike Bloomberg than me, with the possible exception of his employees. Uh, I would have voted for the guy if he ran against Trump and and and, and Hillary. Uh, I lived in New York during his mayoralty, and I voted for him uh, all three times. But I, to me, it, 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 when Clinton carts him out there uh, to tout him, it, it, it undercuts her her message to the Sanders voters and to the whole anti-Wall Street crowd. You, you, you can't be speaking out of both sides of your mouth, particularly if you're a Clinton and you already have kind of a reputation for being slick or flip-flopping or being all things to all people. I mean, when Bloomberg was thinking about running against Clinton, one of the things he was upset about was her flip-flopping on free trade. She had called the... the, the uh, the Pacific Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, trade deal, uh, the gold standard, and then when she got into a tough primer against Bernie Sanders, all of a sudden she came out against it. And in a way, she's doing the same thing by by uh, having Bloomberg, this Wall Street billionaire, talk at her convention, and at the same time in her speech, saying she's going to prevent Wall Street from from wrecking Main Street. Well, which is it? I think people will start to, and Trump's <laughs> running around talking about her speaking fees from Goldman Sachs, saying she, she's totally owned by Wall Street. That's a line Trump says in almost every speech, that Hillary Clinton is totally owned by Wall Street. And he's saying it because he thinks, and, and he's been proven correctly so far, that that's a line that really resonates with voters who don't live in Manhattan. 
But surely what Mrs. Clinton is doing is what every presidential candidate does, and that is that they pander to the primary voters, and therefore they find themselves, because primary voters are more avid about political matters than the rest of the population, so they are in one direction. And then, because all elections are won in the the center, uh, unless... Donald Trump has broken that golden rule too. Uh, What somebody like Mrs. Clinton does while waving out of the back window at Bernie as she tears off in her sports car with Mike Bloomberg into the center ground, which is, I guess, where she's going to govern from. Well, I wouldn't be so sure. I mean, I think she's got such strong uh, numbers on don't, such weak numbers on don't trust her. I mean, that people trust Clinton less than they they trust Trump. I mean, Trump at least has authenticity going for him. He doesn't have sanity. <laughs> but, you know, if it's an election where you have to choose either sanity or authenticity, I don't think it's a clear... I, I, I don't think sanity is a clear, clear winner in that fight. I mean, especially if people are sick and tired of the status quo. Yeah, well, that may be the case, but uh, interesting the way that you portray it, though, the choice between sanity and authenticity, because you'd imagine a rational person like you would instantly say, well, san- I'll, I'll go for sanity, thank you. But well, plainly, I, I think you the, the view is that san- we've had sanity. We've had <laughs> sanity for, for uh, status- sanity is the status quo. We've had sanity for for the last 40 or 20 or eight uh, years, and we have 1% growth, we have uh, declining wages uh, in real terms, we have uh, police getting killed, we have the Islamic State uh, having mass massacres uh, from Orlando to San Bernardino, and you know, it's enough to make somebody lose their sanity, or, or at least angry <laughs> enough to to uh, want to set a crazy person loose on the bad guys. And 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 if Hillary can't understand or empathize with that anger, uh, I think she's going to lose the election. I suppose it depends. It's, I think it's going to come down to a battle of how many moderate Republicans she can win over and how many blue-collar workers who may have voted Democrat or may have voted Republican past, but the old Rust Belt people who are particularly pissed off uh, with what's happened to them. Uh, I guess that's the, the trade-off, and it's a matter of who can do the best. There's, there's a very different path to the White House for Trump, which looks very rocky and very steep, doesn't it? Well, you know, that was a Ted Cruz uh, calculation, that you could win this election by micro-targeting. And, you know, if you could, you could narrow-cast your Facebook message to the right, uh, to the right subgroups. Uh, and, and Trump really didn't bother with any of that. He, he didn't even do small group campaigning. He just had these mass rallies. And, and you know, I, I think... What uh, I think the press has had a hard time picking up on the mood of the electorate, and um, it 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 was shown in the strong support for Sanders and and the intensity of the support for Sanders, and also uh, in the strong and intense support for Trump. 
Thanks, Ira. Great pleasure as always. I'm Nicholas Wapshot. I'm signing off from the Leslie Marshall Show. I've had a great time here as always, and I look forward to seeing you again when I'm next on. Bye-bye. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love. How to show up with Coca-Cola Energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.